All right, we are back, and I cannot resist starting off our second segment with a briefing article that appeared last month in The Week, entitled, The Enduring Legend of Bigfoot. Sorry, I just can't help myself. The article starts out, how did Bigfoot get its name? These briefing sections they do in The Week are uniformly excellent. This one's no exception. On August 27, 1958, a bulldozer operator for a Northern California logging company made a discovery. Jerry Crew was clearing away brush and stumps near Bluff Creek, about 300 miles north of San Francisco, when he found enormous man-like footprints in the mud. Shocked, he relayed the news and discovered his colleagues had also spotted mammoth tracks several times. News of their sighting was reported in the Humboldt Times. The story contained the first recorded use of the name Bigfoot. <laughs> the Sunday story went on over the wires, and on Monday, Tuesday, and for the rest of many days, Humboldt Times columnist Andrew Gonzoli said, we had reporters from all the wire services pounding on our doors. <laughs> the second question was, was the story true? And the answer was, no. After Crew's co-worker Ray Wallace died at age 84 back in 2002, as we reported on this program, his children revealed a secret. Wallace had made the prints by stomping in the mud with a carved wooden foot, or feet, I guess. It was all just a joke, they said. News of Wallace's hoax, however, barely registered with Bigfoot's believers. Today, interest in the existence of the creature is at an all-time high. In May, thousands of believers will attend one of the largest ever Bigfoot conferences in Ohio, where organizers say speakers from across the Bigfoot community share the experiences and knowledge in the subject of Sasquatch. Now, I have to confess, back when I was an anthropology student, age 19, it seemed to me that someone should go up and look and see whether there are, really are large hairy hominids running around Northern California. So, three of us packed up the car, drove up to the area near Bluff Creek, and tried to find where they filmed, supposedly filmed, Sasquatch out in the woods, and, well, let's just say we didn't find him. The briefing notes that in 1967, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin made a 59-second film showing an ape-like creature walking around near the same Bluff Creek of the original sighting. Years later, costume manufacturer Philip Morris said he sold Roger Patterson the gorilla suit seen in the film and introduced a large man who said he tromped around in the costume for the camera. I remember seeing a documentary on this in television that showed the guy walking, and damn if he doesn't look exactly like the creature in the film. So, sadly, I note to my former 19-year-old self that now it was all a big hoax. There was nothing to it. Uh, the briefing notes that, scientifically speaking, there's not a single iota of evidence showing that Bigfoot is real. Mark Wilson, natural sciences professor who studied these sightings, says, No bodies, no bones, no hair, no skin, no DNA. On the other hand, Jane Goodall, she of legendary uh, status of studying chimpanzees, who has heard indigenous people from several continents describe sightings of Bigfoot-like creatures, says, You'll be amazed when I tell you that I'm sure they exist. I guess I'm a romantic. I don't want to disbelieve. Say what you want about, uh, you know, hairy hominids running about in the bush. At least, at least people claim to have seen them. I was struck by the continuing, the continuing number of articles about the planet Nibiru, which is supposed to crash into the Earth sometime, uh, I don't know, sometime soon. It's supposed to be a planet out there orbiting the sun, headed for us, you know, doomsday, doomsday planet going to crash into us. Except no one seems to be able to point a telescope at it and actually see it. What really struck me 
odd about the last article I, I saw about this uh, was that it was described as a conspiracy theory, which got me asking the question, how is it a purported rogue planet supposed to crash into the Earth can be construed as a conspiracy theory? That's really stretching it. But it amazes me how common the term is thrown out there because, you know, if you want to put a tinfoil hat on somebody's head, call them a conspiracy theorist. And speaking of conspiracy theorists and theories, evidently Robert Mueller's um, investigation of Trump, such as it was, uh, did address an issue that didn't get much press. Uh, it revealed somewhere along the way that Seth Richard, a young Democratic National Committee employee who was the victim of an unresolved killing last year, uh, was not the source of thousands of internal DNC emails that WikiLeaks released during the 2016 presidential race. They officially debunked the notion that had persisted without support for years through people like Alex Jones, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and Newt Gingrich. Robert Mueller took aim at WikiLeaks and its founder, Julian Assange, for falsely implying that Rich was somehow involved in the dissemination of the emails, an act that aided Donald Trump's campaign for president. It's very convenient to name a guy that, you know, is now dead. According to the report, quote, WikiLeaks and Assange made several public statements apparently designed to obscure the source of the materials that WikiLeaks was releasing. And the report did show that WikiLeaks corresponded with the true source of the leaked emails, Russian hackers, and did so after Seth Rich had died. Anyway, this is one instance where the term conspiracy theory seems uh, useful and appropriate. I don't want to spend too much time on Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and uh, how we're getting the runaround from the United States Attorney General regarding the Mueller report, which is being excerpted for us. But I want to take a minute to... uh, cite from an analysis done for the Washington Post about what we know and don't know about WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, and the 2016 campaign. This comes from an article by Philip Bump, which uh, was printed on April 11th. To cite a few of these, we know that WikiLeaks published the stolen materials in two sets. The first, Documents from the DNC, was published in late July, shortly before the Democratic Convention began. The second, the Podesta emails, were published over the course of October. That dump began on October 7th, shortly after the release of the Access Hollywood tape. We believe, not know, but we believe from Mueller's indictments and contemporaneous reporting that the material was stolen by Russian hackers who began releasing information in June 16 through a website called DC Leaks through a person called Guccifer 2.0. He notes, we believe from Mueller's indictments that the Russian hackers sent WikiLeaks a file containing stolen materials in mid-July. We don't know if that transfer included both materials stolen from the DNC and from Podesta. If it was only the former, there would necessarily have been another point of contact later in the campaign. We know that Assange bragged in a TV interview about having possession of information incriminating Clinton in mid-July, before the stolen DNC material was released publicly. His description of that material, though, included information that was made public in January. We know that Trump's associate, Roger Stone, told associates at some point in the spring of 2016 he'd been in contact with Assange and had learned that Assange had emails that would be problematic for Clinton and Podesta. We know that the effects of the DNC document releases were significant. They muddied the first few days of the Democratic Convention and spurred the resignation of then-DNC Chairman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. We know that Roger Stone later predicted more WikiLeaks releases. Those increased in October with Credico suggesting that a dump was imminent. In August, Stone had claimed 
It will soon be Podesta's time in the barrel, which was later used to suggest he knew about the October releases of Podesta's email. We know that WikiLeaks and Donald Trump Jr. were in contact over Twitter beginning in late September. After WikiLeaks sent Trump Jr. a message about an anti-Trump site linking the candidate to Putin, Trump Jr. passed it to other campaign officials. After the Podesta emails started coming out, WikiLeaks sent Trump Jr. a link to the documents to share. After that message, the candidate tweeted out his support for the group, a group he now says he knows nothing about. There's more to this story. Keep watching. Anyway, it turns out uh, Bigfoot, sadly, is not a member of the human family, but scientists apparently have found fossils of someone that was. NPR.org is reporting that mankind has a new ancestor, an unusual species of humans that researchers believe lived in the Philippines as recently as 50,000 years ago. Remains of Homo luzonensis were first discovered in a cave on the island of Luzon in 2007. The fossilized body parts, which include teeth, part of a femur, a hand, and foot bones, suggest the diminutive hominids stood more than, no more than four feet tall and used their toes for climbing trees as well as walking. Homo luzonensis is the fourth extinct human found in recent years after the discovery of Homo florensius in Indonesia in 2003, the Denisovans in Siberia in 2010, and Homo naledi in South Africa in 2013. Taken together, these finds suggest that human evolution was more variable than previously thought, with different groups adopting to conditions all over the world. Moreover, several different species may have coexisted with early modern humans. The discoveries will play havoc with any easy classification of our ancestors. The evolution of Homo is getting weirder and weirder, said a researcher at the Smithsonian. I've been puzzling over this for, for many, many decades. It's claimed that there was a late migration out of Africa that went all over the world and supplanted all the humans or related species of humans that were Europe, in Asia, as far as, you know, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and Australia. And it has always seemed to me that uh, unless we're positive that their species barriers were in place and that it was not possible to interbreed, I've always thought you're on shaky ground claiming that, you know, it's just we're all modern humans, we all have the same migration, we all come out of Africa at the same time, and that's that. Well, all, this, all these recent discoveries are casting some doubt on that. Noted New Scientist magazine, our species may have interbred with the Denisovans as recently as 15,000 years ago. That's according to detailed analysis of the DNA of people living in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. We already know, said New Scientist, after Homo sapiens first moved out of Africa, that our species repeatedly interbred with others, including the now extinct Neanderthals and Denisovans. Well, I'm glad they're admitting that. Now, this was not this was heresy not that long ago. But the signs are in our DNA. People of non-African descent carry some Neanderthal DNA, while some Asian and Australasian people also have Denisovan DNA. I, I'm shocked by how little we know about this Denisovan population. Their existence came to light when DNA was sequenced from a fragment of finger bone from a cave in Siberia. Since then, only a few more fragments and teeth have been found. But genetic analysis suggests our species interbred with Denisovans at least twice, and that the genomes of people in Papua New Guinea today may be up to 5% Denisovan. 
Anyway, this latest evidence suggests that uh, the last interbreeding between Homo sapiens and whatever we're going to call Homo denisovinian <laughs> was between 50,000 and 15,000 years ago. And there is reason to think it happened at the most recent end of that range, according to researchers looking at the DNA. And as regards uh, the family of man, Homo sapiens, uh, families of Homo sapiens, there was a curious book that came out about six months ago, which frankly I did not read, but I was intrigued by the reviews that were out about it, and I think interview with the author on one of the, uh, the NPR shows, I think. The book was titled In My Father's House, A New View of How Crime Runs in the Family by Fox Butterfield. Apparently, Mr. Butterfield took a look at, uh, at a certain family called the Boggles, which I guess uh, came out of Texas, and uh, came up with a very vivid portrayal of this extended clan, which seemed to have criminality built into them. Noted a review in the Weekly Standard, Texas-born con artist L.V. Boggle and her sons and grandsons provide almost abusively vivid evidence that certain families breed lawbreakers. Butterfield eventually identified 60 convicts in the Boggle family tree, and he gained the confidence of enough of them to be able to share their favorite tales about swindles, robberies, car thefts, and kidnappings, even a heist of salmon from a fish hatchery. The Boggles aren't simply colorful outliers, though. Butterfield cites studies indicating that 5% of all families account for perhaps half of all crimes and 10% for two-thirds of all crimes. Said the LA Times, this is a book then about family values of a particular sort. They note that Elvie and her husband married in 1921 and joined a traveling carnival while working scams and raising five boys who all earned criminal records. Evidently, Rooster, Elvie's favorite son, was a wild man. He had ten children by two women. One son was coaxed to perform a break-in at age four. Another was taught how to fence stolen bikes at age six. That son evidently told Butterfield that among the Boggles, turning criminal was an honorable thing. Butterfield acknowledges a history of mental illness in the family and that inheritable traits such as poor impulse control could be factors. But families pass on more than genes. They also pass on expectations. For most Boggles, committing crimes was a way to make mom and dad proud. And while I don't know whether we will ever find families on the planet Mars, and how's that for a clunky segue... A recent study by Stephen Scholes of the University of Washington in Seattle notes that if there is life on Mars, it looks like it will be pretty thin on the ground. Scholes calculated the maximum Martian biomass that could exist to be about 200 million tons, which seems like a lot, but that's only, well, that's about one ten thousandth that of planet Earth. The air on Mars contains two rich sources of chemical energy, carbon monoxide and hydrogen, which are formed by the action of sunlight. To find out how much life could, in theory, be feeding on this, Scholes and colleagues built a model of the atmosphere's chemistry. They simulated how much of both gases could be forming in the air and how much could be drawn out of the atmosphere by microorganisms while keeping these simulated levels in the air in line with actual observations. To estimate the maximum amount of life that these chemical flows could support, the team assumed that each cell is just barely sticking around by using the minimum possible amount of energy. Even allowing for this, only a small biomass seems viable. It would probably be microbial and several kilometers below ground where liquid water is more likely and gases from above can still diffuse. 
Furthermore, we would bet the farm that no one's ever going to find criminal families on the Red Planet. Oh, and speaking of the Red Planet, although I can't put my hand on the article right now, apparently Mars One, that group that planned to send humans off to Mars, well, they ran into some financial troubles, and apparently they've now declared bankruptcy. You got to admit, it didn't look good, because even though 100 people did volunteer, and I guess were screened to become future astronauts to make the trip to Mars, the organizers hadn't quite worked out the technology of how they were going to blast off and return to Earth. Therefore, (laughs) the whole idea was predicated on the fact that you were making a one-way trip. Now, there's a lot of people here on planet Earth, frankly, I wish would make a one-way trip to Mars. But alas, it looks like it ain't ever going to happen. And here's something else we're never going to get an answer to, which I find kind of curious. According to the briefing section of New Scientist, a farmer in Michigan recently discovered that a rock he was using as a doorstop is in fact a meteorite worth up to $100,000. When he bought another farm in 1988, the previous owner told him his father had seen the stone come down from the sky in the 1930s. After keeping it for 30 years, he brought the 10-kilogram rock to Mona Sorescu, a geologist at Central Michigan University, who determined it was 88% iron, 12% nickel, and, well, was indeed a meteorite. What I want to know is, what did that guy see when this thing came falling out of the sky onto his farm? I would kill to hear that firsthand report. It is widely believed, by the way, that the sacred black stone at the center of the worshiping that takes place uh, in, in Mecca, the center of Islam, That stone is believed to predate the era in which Muhammad lived and be a carryover from prior faiths in the area. It is possible to imagine out in the Arabian desert that someone might have witnessed the actual fall of the stone from the sky and thought, well, this is something really truly from beyond this earth, which, you know, by by all accounts, it is. Although there is no legend that has come down to us through time over how that stone got to be venerated. All right, we did a good news item at the top of the show, and here's another one that's it's such a good news item, it's, it's almost too good to be true, but I'm going to cite it anyway because it looks like it holds up. At least the source comes from New Scientist, which we think is an exceptionally reputable magazine. Here's the story, article by Michael Marshall in the April 27th edition of the magazine. Notes that there could finally be a way to make fertilizer without releasing huge amounts of greenhouse gases. That's if the new method can be made to work on an industrial scale. If so, it would help feed the world's growing population while also limiting climate change. Farmers rely on fertilizers to feed their crops. Many of these contain ammonia. But the only way to make it on a large scale is the Haber-Bosch process, the method which was developed in the 1900s to make the chemical by combining nitrogen from the air with hydrogen. The process requires temperatures of around 425 degrees Celsius and pressures of up to 200 times normal atmospheric pressure. The energy required to achieve this typically comes from fossil fuels, and the ammonia industry accounts for over 1% of the world's annual greenhouse gas emissions. To solve this problem, Yokiyashi Nishibayashi at the University of Tokyo and his colleagues have developed a way of making ammonia that not only works at room temperature, but also at standard atmospheric pressure. Chemists have been searching for a replacement for the Haber-Bosch process for years. In 2003, a team converted nitrogen into ammonia using a molybdenum-based catalyst to speed up the reaction, the first method without added heat or pressure that worked. 
2011, the team succeeded in making ammonia from nitrogen using a catalyst based on molybdenum iodide, which worked at room temperature and standard atmospheric pressure. Still a problem, though. The catalyst for this method needed expensive chemicals to react with nitrogen. This pushed up the costs and limited its usefulness on a commercial scale. Nishibayashi's team has now found a way to use cheap, readily available substances instead the researcher's chosen reagent is the strongly reactive samarium diiodide. And no, I don't remember where samarium is on the periodic table. Wherever it is, turns out this ammonia production rate is 500 times faster than that of Haber-Bosch. It is one or two orders of magnitude faster than the other reactions developed so far and approaches the speed of the enzyme nitrogenase, which some fungi use to capture nitrogen from the air. The sticking point of this whole thing is the huge volumes of samarium that would be needed for large-scale ammonia production, which would certainly push up costs. And no, I cannot expound upon samarium because I don't know a thing about it, but I'll try and learn something by next week's show. How's that? Talking high-tech solution to the world's problems, and I guess we are. I, I do want to just comment upon the science and technology piece that was in The Economist, April 13th issue, titled How to Knit a Sports Car, talked about the new black arts of manufacturing. And yes, they're referring to the use of carbon fibers. The article notes that carbon fibers are attractive because they're lightweight, they're exceptionally strong. The toughest fibers are up to 10 times stronger than steel, eight times more so than aluminum. Carbon fiber is also five times lighter than steel and half the weight or less of aluminum and doesn't corrode. In transport industries where lightweighting is most valuable, carbon fiber allows aircraft and cars to be made lighter and to travel farther on the same amount of fuel. Okay, this all sounds great, but cannot we think back to maybe the 1940s and 50s as plastics were being developed and being used in everything that, uh, well, we, we just didn't foresee some of the problems from the use of plastics. And when we do talk about plastics, we're going to have to mention the fact that your washing machine apparently is putting out scads of fibers from your synthetic clothing, synthetic fibers used in the manufacture of clothes. Uh, this is turning into a significant issue. And I just wonder, do we have any idea what carbon fibers are going to do when they break down? I think we should find out. But I got a feeling economics is going to drive this whole, uh, whole thing. And we'll find out sooner or later once our environment's, you know, filled with carbon fiber. Something else we're going to have to talk about in the future is the fact that, well, if we want to stop climate change, we're going to have to travel less. It just seems to be not many ways around it. Since 2011, the European Union has taken the viewpoint that curbing mobility is not an option to fight global warming. But last week, the European Academy's Science Advisory Council, which represents the EU's National Science Academies, published a major report on transport emissions, urging the EU to reverse its stance. It should be noted that in 2016, the transport sector overtook energy as the UK's biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, a milestone the rest of the EU could hit in the 2020s. I got a friend of mine who's making a point to, to try never use plastic bottles. This is an honorable goal. But evidently, from the energy savings perspective, in order to, uh, to equal the amount of energy consumed in you and me and Joe Blow taking a flight on an airplane over to, say, Europe. He's going to have to recycle, I think the number was 40,000 bottles. Another friend of mine, related to the previous friend, 
also posted on social media recently that she was uh, giving up her membership to the Sierra Club owing to their indefatigable opposition to nuclear power. She just felt that at this day and age, we, we just cannot take that position. And, you know, I agree with her. When uh, Tony Wheeler, the founder of the Lonely Planet series of books, which is just a wonderful aid to anyone who wishes to travel, especially to exotic, out-of-the-way places, uh, we, were, we were privileged to have him on the show after he gave this talk in, in the Bay Area. Uh, Tony Wheeler said, yeah, there's, there's no way around this. I mean, like, the, this, we, we do have to find a way. Well, we, people are just going to have to travel less and travel more, uh, travel with better planning, I guess you could, you could say. But the truth of the matter is you burn a lot of fuel when you climb aboard an aircraft. And again, I guess we're just going to have to plan our trips better so that we're not, you know, taking as many of them. I'm going to skate out on some thin ice here on something I really don't quite understand, but I'm sort of fascinated by. Astronomy Magazine had the question asked of them, in the first gravitational wave detection, black holes with masses of 29 and 36 suns created a 62 solar mass black hole. Three solar masses were lost. How do black holes lose mass? The answer was, the short answer to your question is that the energy equivalent of three solar masses, or three times the mass of our sun, got carried away in the form of gravitational wave radiation. Recall the famous equation E equals mc squared, which states that energy and mass are equivalent. This is exactly the scenario in which we would use this equation, because mass was lost when the black holes merged through the form of energy radiating away. This mass was converted to gravitational waves within a fraction of a second, said the magazine. The crazy thing about this is the gravitational wave power emitted by this merger through E equals mc squared was more than 10 times the combined power in our entire visible universe, meaning the light of every star and galaxy in our observable universe. So it's a crazy amount of power rippling through space-time. Something else we need to address, which I guess I'm just going to throw out because we're addressing things, is the fact that, well, we have to deal with sand. It turns out sand is like oil. It takes a lot of time to make, and we're running out of it. It is a crucial ingredient in concrete, bricks, plaster, glass, and microchips. And what's more, efforts to mine ever more sand are damaging ecosystems around the world. Between 60 and 75% of the sand that we mine goes to feed our hunger for concrete. Concrete is made mostly of sand and gravel with a little cement thrown in. Most recipes call for large, rough sand grains that bind together well. So although there are maybe mountains of the stuff blowing around the Sahara, for example, those grains are no good for most types of concrete. They're too small and they're too polished. The best sources for concrete-compatible sand are riverbeds, beaches, and near-shore seabed. Apparently all over the world, sand mafias have developed where uh, mining gangs go out and just basically, you know, steal all the sand from an area because it's valuable. This does not have healthy effects on beaches. All over the world, this is degrading marshes. It's, it's damaging coral. It's causing the effects of tsunamis to be magnified because of the sand dunes that are now absent in areas. And just plain raising hell everywhere. So, sorry folks, but I, I guess we need to put that one on the radar. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Bum, 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 bum. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Bum, 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 bum. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. 
and that you've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. Bum, 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 bum.